Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and your host of Give Me Strength. What makes a strong person to you? Could it be the kilograms in your deadlift, the miles you're able to run, or is it as simple as saying how you feel, an inner feeling of strength that's there regardless of your fitness abilities? Each week, I'll be looking into this concept, asking extraordinary women about their ever-evolving relationship with exercise and how their experiences have shaped who they are today. Together, we'll discuss the positives of living a stronger life, both physically and mentally, in the hope that we can inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. With this podcast, I've wanted to dig into a whole host of topics. We've covered elite athletes, inspiring change makers, and those changing the conversation around women's bodies. Today, we're taking a slightly different approach, and I'm very honoured to be joined by my good friend and editor-in-chief of Women's Health UK, Claire Sanderson. Claire has a 20-year career in national media publishing. Her first journalism role was a graduate trainee reporter for The Mirror, and since then she has held senior editorial positions on several high-profile publications, including The Sun, Grazia and Look magazine. Claire is not only juggling the challenges of running the huge award-winning juggernaut that is women's health, but she's also a mum of two young children, Zach and Nell, and a fitness fanatic in her own right. Under Claire's tenure, women's health audience has grown at a time when traditional print media on the whole is struggling, and it's won Consumer Magazine of the Year three years running. At present, there is a mediated norm for body image where women are praised for being thin, which is consistently celebrated on catwalks, print and social media. As consumers, it's no wonder that we develop the belief that thinness equates to being socially desirable and can cause us to engage in drastic diets and cosmetic surgery in an attempt to measure up to the standards of society. Today, we'll hear from the editor of one of the UK's biggest women's magazines about how she navigates this responsibility and the difficult role of making lasting change. Claire, this feels very weird, (laughs) bearing in mind that we were on the gym floor only a few hours ago, but welcome to Give Me Strength. Thank you. So, I thought we could start by you telling me what a day in the life of women's health editor is like, apart from training in the gym with a fabulous PT. How are your days spent? 
Oh, no one day is the same as the previous one. You know how ridiculous my schedule can be. Typically, I am gotten out of bed before six o'clock by one or both of my children. (laughs) Depending on whether I'm training or whether I'm choosing to have breakfast with the kids depends on how quick I leave the house. But let's talk about training day because today you and I trained earlier. So um, i quickly put my kit on, wash my face and I'm out the door by half past six. I then work on the train all the way to London because I live in Winchester. So it's a very useful hour for me. I get more done in that hour than I do all day in the office because I'm undistracted and I don't have people interrupting me. When I get to London, I, I train and that tends to be three mornings a week. Um, for an hour, either at Third Space with you or at Define on Great Portland Street. And then I get to the office just before 10 o'clock. And then how my day looks from then on is is anyone's business. You know, I can be planning editorial meetings with my team, flat planning content. I do a lot of public speaking and presentations. So there's a lot of prep work that goes into them. I'm basically the brand ambassador. So I'm across the whole brand. I don't just work on the magazine. I'm the editor in chief of the whole brand. So um, I, I, it's the magazine, but it's also commercial. It's also events. It's also product licensing. You name it and I do it. We, we also produce three bookazines a year, which are basically books. Our latest one is on the shelf at the moment called Run For It. We do supplements which we give away with a magazine so I'm across all of those. Wow (laughs) that is a lot. I want to take you back you are a very proud Valleys girl as you describe yourself. Yes. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about um, early life growing up for you in the Valleys? Well I was brought up in the South Wales Valleys in a place called Abercanon. Um, it's working class, solid working class. Um, and back then, the, the mainstay for the men was, was working down the mines until they closed in the 80s. And women tend to work in factories. Um, not much has changed now apart from there's no mines. So some men tend to work in physical jobs like building and labouring. But I I grew up with two brothers. I've got an older brother who's four years older than me and a younger brother. And we had a fairly normal Valleys upbringing. You know, grew up in a terraced house um, with parents who loved me. But equally, it was a generation where kids were just left to get on with it. You know, sort of just put out in the back garden, come rain or shine, providing you've got appropriate clothes on, you're fine (laughs) kind of thing. You know, the the beautiful freedom you had in those days where you could literally go out and come back for your tea at five o'clock, you know, Mm. come in when it starts going dark. Mm. You've openly spoken, both you've written about it and you've I've heard you heard you speak at events about suffering from a really poor body image from mm. a young age. Yes. As so many young girls do. You know, I was definitely the same. Can you talk about that time and what you remember and sort of what you felt like the catalyst was for those feelings? I have never felt good enough. I've I've never felt like I'm worthy of people's care, attention, love or praise. And this stems back from when I was three or four. One of my most vivid memories of childhood is weighing myself and weighing myself constantly and getting distraught by the increasing number on the scales because no one really took the time to explain to me that you are a child and you are grown and you will gain weight. So if I wasn't weighing myself at home in my mother's, in my parents' house, I'd be weighing myself in my grandparents because they had a scales in their bathroom as well. And I was even spending my pocket money going to the local pharmacy where they had those big scales. In other words, you could stand on, they looked like they belong in a fair, you know, and standing on there and getting visibly upset by my weight. But no one took me to one side and 
discouraged me from doing so for a start, tried to talk some sense into me mm. or even tell me I was beautiful or pretty and I had nothing to worry about. And I remember when I was six or seven, possibly, and I was very good at maths in school. I'd read ahead in the maths textbook and one of the tasks was the children had to weigh each other to learn about metric scales, mm. you know, turning pounds into kilos, etc. And I was utterly mortified by the prospect of being weighed in front of my classmates. So much so that I got my mother to ring the school and tell the teacher I was not to be weighed. And I, it was really, really upsetting me. And, and she did it. And, and I, would, I didn't take part in that exercise. Now, I, I look back and think... And I say this with love in my heart because my parents are product of their solid working class upbringing where any emotion was scarce. Mm. Any, and even now we're the most least demonstrative family you could mm. possibly meet. But I think someone had a duty of care to me to, mm. to take me to one side because that level of paranoia, which I formed from a very young age, mm. has stayed with me and I'm, I'm 41 in two weeks' time. Mm. So it's abated somewhat since I've had children. Mm but not to any great deal. Mm. And the seeds were sown when I was mm. a very young child. You're talking like six or seven years yes. old. Yes. What do you think? Like, you know, because we're talking a time where there wasn't social media. Yeah. It was a completely different time. There was less access to things like TV and glossy magazines. Do you even know what the catalyst might be for you developing those sort of feelings? I don't know what the catalyst was, but it's undeniable that I was bigger than my friends. So I've always been taller mm. and I was always, for want of a better phrase, a little bit chubby. But I wasn't mm. worryingly overweight. I was bigger than my friends and, be, and I was quite self-conscious mm. about it. Mm. And then in terms of any media I consumed, I used to love watching things like Baywatch. Now, you would question why... A child has been allowed to watch Baywatch. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, Beverly Hills 90210. These are the type of of TV shows mm. that we used to watch mm -hmm. in the sort of 80s, late mm. 80s. I'm feeling inadequate watching those type of TV shows. But I think it was simply that I was bigger than my friends. So, you know, I tried to go to gymnastics, but I remember being mortified having to wear a leotard because I felt bigger than my friends. And, um, you know, when I was in school and made to do cross country in the little knickers, mm. it was like a form of torture to me. And that continued into high school, whereas by the time I was 11, I had hips and boobs. Mm. I looked about 16 mm. when I was 11, you mm. know, I... I became womanly a long time mm. before a lot of my friends. I was the same. Yeah. I was exactly the same. And I remember the, that, those exact feelings, like little things like getting change for PE. Yeah. When other girls are completely flat chested and don't have anything and you're suddenly like, oh my God, and you become so embarrassed yeah. and yeah. self-conscious of your body. But no one ever stops you to explain that's totally normal. And, you yeah. know, th these things are going to happen to everyone. And, yeah, I, I, those feelings are definitely things I can relate yeah. to. And then in school, I went through the Catholic education system. So there was no sex education or anything like that. I mean, mm. sex education was don't have sex, you know, <laughs> until you're married or you, you go to the depths of hell. So children were suffering. I was suffering mm. and I wasn't being influenced by social media. Mm. But no one took me to one side. And, mm. this, and this insecurity has blighted me a bit through life because it does make you less confident and I know you'll find that hard to believe because I've done very well in my career and you mm. know me well and I can be quite ballsy mm. in many, many ways. Mm. But I do lack confidence, especially when it comes to my appearance, which is faintly ridiculous, really. But do you think a lot of that ballsiness is actually just your coping mechanism of 
of covering the insecurities that you do have. Yeah, possibly. Was there anyone that you spoke to at this time? Was there anyone that you, you sort of confided in? Any friends that were like, oh, you know what, actually I'm going through the same? Or was this all internalised? No, it was all internalised. Although it was... Everyone knew that I was obsessed with my looks from a very young age, always mm. on diets. I joined a slimming club when I was about 14, uh, but I didn't really need to, you know, and I've, it's kind of a bit of an ongoing joke mm. that, you know, when I left Look Magazine and um, in publishing, when you leave um, a publication, they give they give you a front cover mm. and it's like your picture is on the front and then they put like cover lines on, mm. which are supposed to almost take the mick out of you a bit. Mm. I remember one of the cover lines was, like one woman's imaginary battle with the with being overweight or something you know it's just mm. it's just followed me around that's what people mm. know what I'm like I'm obsessed with it you know I, I speak to you about it all the time and it's definitely something that we've tried to work on it's like a lot of the time when I see you we have a conversation where I'm like right let's focus on training let's focus on mm. these gym brace goals but I can tell in the back of your mind you're still painfully self-conscious about being in a gym environment and actually a lot of what you've spoken about was a lot of what I I found myself going through growing up as well and I do think you're right in that at some point there needs to be a responsibility to those around you you know maybe someone at school or whatever to to, to realize that someone is really struggling definitely something that I think might influence the way that you bring up now and I know that's mm. something you've spoken about quite a lot is now you have your own daughter. How have you found this impacting the way that you bring her up and the, things like even the language that you use mm. and some of the behaviours that you that you do at, that you op- yeah. operate at home? Well, I've definitely made loads of mistakes because as part of the campaign about body confidence, I've spoken to child psychiatrists and um, psychologists and, and they've told me how you should be communicating with younger children especially Mm. girls and I know I've made mistakes so one of the things you should never do is point out a, woman, a little girl's body um, in a, in what could be deemed as a negative way. You shouldn't say things like, oh, look at your chubby legs. I've said that to Nell. Like, oh, mm. look at your chubby bum. You shouldn't do that because children are very bright and they will just mm. latch on to the word chubby. I've spoken to other mums and they've said they've been guilty of calling their daughters skinny minis, you know, and now they've mm. changed their way mm. of because that can be equally as confidence sapping, you mm. know, if you, because that, that's a, 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 that comes with a whole host of negative connotations as well. So, Nell, my daughter, is a mini me in every single way. I mean, you've seen her picture. Mm. She's the she looks the absolute image of me. She's got my temperament. She's stroppy. She can be quite temperamental. She's very determined. But equally, if you look at pictures of me when I was Nell's age, it's like looking at the same child. And as much as she is taller than all her friends, mm. she's three and she's in age five to six clothes. Mm. She's bigger built than all her friends. Mm. At nursery, she bosses all the girls about in her room and <laughs> I get told she's the leader of the room. I'm not surprised because she looks about two and a half years older than all of them. You know, her and her best friend Penny, it's hilarious. Penny's up to her chest, basically, and Nell's mm. kind of... So I am doing my damnedest to ensure that Nell doesn't develop the insecurities that I did. Um, so I call her pretty and I call her beautiful but I also call her clever and I also call her strong and she sees me in the living room doing my exercises Mm. um, because one of my things that I do is when I'm ironing I'll iron one thing and then do 10 squats (laughs) oh my god (laughs) so she joins in but how do you make that not about oh god 
I need to obsess about exercise and instead just be like, you know, this is this is my form of movement for yeah. the day. Well, I say I'm doing it to make my muscles big and strong. So I'm I'm mm. seeing it as a as a positive mm. because I definitely want her to think exercise mm. is a part it's of a my life. Thing, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So and there's research by um, Sport England that says very recent research that says children who were brought up in a household where the mum exercises and I'm not saying the dad is irrelevant but this mm. research was part of this girl cancer it was, mm. it was concentrating yeah. on mums are much more likely to engage mm. in physical exercise themselves both as children mm. and as adults mm. so Nell sees me going off to the gym Saturday and Sunday morning mm. I go to Orange Theory in Winchester where I live in the week three mornings a week I come and see you guys she sees me leaving in the morning with my kit on mm. she sees me doing exercises in the garden mm. and she joins in and I think that's a, a brilliant um, yeah. example to be set in her I do and I think there's something in just making it a positive choice and you know I think for me for example when I was growing up and some of the things that happened in my own upbringing I'm sure my mum wouldn't mind me saying but exercise for her was it, it was an all or nothing she was like all out I'm training for this and I'm going to do this and or it was kind of n- not at all I don't have kids myself but I think when I do one of my biggest objectives in terms of how I discuss exercise and the things that I will do around it is to make sure that they always see it as like you know it's a positive thing and and, and it makes you feel great and the reasons why you're doing it have nothing to do with I'm trying to change yeah. my body and I'm trying to lose weight and I think that's a, that's definitely what it sounds like you're doing and I think you know language as you've highlighted is so important mm. the words that you use and I think I've I've never had more respect for that than I do now that I remember one 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 moment in my childhood which was like mortifying and I still remember it to this day and I still remember the feeling and I was walking down Gerrard's Cross High Street where I grew up and there was this group of boys one of them who I really fancied I was probably in like year six and he turned around and said to me, you've got tree trunk legs. Oh, I've got that. Oh, yeah. my God. I cannot tell you. I remember running home and like sobbing for days. And it, and that, those mm. words stuck with me for yeah. so long. So, so no, I think that's um, there's so much in that. And have you noticed that shift into how you approach the language used in the magazine as well? Because I know that you've made a lot of positive changes and we are going to go on to that. But particularly mm. language. Is that something that you're now hyper aware of and, and trying to use positive language around both body image and exercise? I think generally we are making the content more inclusive and more diverse. And if it's about achievements, it's about goals to make you strong and empower women mm. and we're moving away well you don't see weight loss cover lines on women's health anymore and you haven't done for the last two years you know shed 10k mm. in, in a three months or whatever I don't think that we ever said that but you know what I'm trying to get at mm. but just generally as a magazine and as a brand I'm trying to make it more inclusive and that's not mm. just about the language that's about the the visuals mm. as well mm-hmm. um, and this is all part of Project Body Love which we, we can talk about in more detail but I think wellness generally is in fact I think it's a wellness trend that wellness mm. is becoming more inclusive mm. and um, people are realising well looks different on everyone you mm. don't have to be a size 8 to 10 to mm. be well you mm-hmm. can be you can well I think in my experience yeah that's the most important thing that healthy doesn't necessarily mean that mm. you're lean and in a you know in a, in a smaller body I think we have this very warped perception of being being small and being skinny or being lean mm. automatically equates to health you know and that that was my perception that's what I strive for but actually in, in, in trying to do so actually I was kind of almost doing the opposite and being yeah. overly restrictive so it's definitely definitely something that I think is really important to highlight um, well you know I went for my health check at the doctor's 
for those of you who are not fortunate enough to be over 40, you get called for a health check at the doctor's and I think it's every five years and I and I went for mine and they you do blood tests, so cholesterol, mm. blood sugar, mm. other things in your blood that um, I can't remember the exact details, but they also do your blood pressure, they weigh you, but then they measure you, so they check your distribution of, of fat around your body. And then it's also a questionnaire, you know, about smoking, drinking, etc. And anything under 10 is considered healthy and it goes up to 100. Mm. And mine was 0.4. And the nurse said, that is incredible. I've never seen someone come back with such a good result. She was shocked that my result came back so good. So, and I came away pretty pleased because I thought, well, you know, I complain that I'm carrying too much weight and blah, blah, blah. But actually compared to 99.9996% of the population, I'm healthier than them. And that's something that I should be focusing, not the number on the scales. I think we've just got this weird idea of of what health is. And I think there's many things that are to blame. And I think it's actually uh, a massive conversation of why do we think we have this sort of thin ideal? There are many things to blame. And it's it's a topic that not even I have enough knowledge on to delve into really deeply. But I do think it's a massive conversation that needs to be had, why we are so obsessed with thin bodies. I'm going to change the subject a little bit. I want to hear about getting your first job. So you left the valleys yes. and you decided that the big city was for you. Yeah. What made you go from a small town in Wales to working in media in one of the biggest biggest and best cities in the world. I was desperate to get out of the valleys. <laughs> <laughs> I was determined to come to London to university. I only applied to London universities. I moved up here when I was 18. I'm, I'm a June baby, a late June baby. So I was quite young moving up here. And the summer before I moved up here, I was working in Panasonic, which is a factory in Cardiff, and it was one of the better factories to get into. And um, I didn't tell them that I was not there for the long haul. I didn't tell them it was a summer job. I just, you know, very naughtily said that, oh, yes, my, my life ambition is to work in Panasonic <laughs> when really I had a place to study in university. So on my last day, my parents came to collect me on my last day and my mother genuinely said, I don't know why you're going to London University because you've got a good job there. Oh my and that God. just goes to show the level of ambition um, that I was surrounded with. But I was utterly determined to, to, to come to London and mm-hmm. I did. I lived in halls of residence and... I studied English and I always wanted to work in the media. Mm. Well, in fact, that's not strictly true because I was half and half that I wanted to be a a lawyer or work in the media. I think Mm. I would have made a great solicitor because I'm so argumentative. (laughs) (laughs) Agree. (laughs) And then I decided I was going to be a journalist simply because I love writing, Mm. when actually that's probably about the 10th reason you become a journalist there should Mm. be many more qualities about you to be good journalists you know Mm. you have to be a people person you have to be able to empathise you have to be very persuasive you Mm -hmm. have to have attention to detail but fortuitously I seem to have all those skills as well so as part of my degree I had to do work experience so believe it or not a module of my degree was information information research and there was an option to go and be in the library of the Daily Mirror at the time because this was at a time when not all the journalists had access to the internet so they would ring the library and say can you get me all the cuttings on Maggie Thatcher election or something whatever so so I thought right that's my opportunity because mm. otherwise I'm not going to get in journalism because I was told that it was a very elite profession to get into and very nepotistic at that, at that time wasn't very it? nepotistic 
public, the, the media was somewhat still is, but to say someone with my accent doesn't get into the national media was an understatement at the time because mm. they really didn't. But I thought, no, no, I'm going to give it a go. So I went into the, the Mirror Library and I did about two weeks and I thought, I've got to get out onto that news floor. Mm. So one day I thought, I'm just going to do it. So Piers Morgan was the editor at the time. So I just walked up to him and I said, hello, Piers. And he was stood at the news desk and he looked round and he was, he was thinking, where did she come from? <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm doing work experience in the library, but I really want to be a journalist. So please, can I come and do work experience at the Mirror? And I think he was so sort of dazzled by my sort of audacity to just strut across the Mirror newsroom, which was a huge newspaper at the time, mm. huge used to rival the sun. So he said, okay introduced me to the news editor and the and the news editor said all right yes you can come in and do work experience and I never left and I ended up making such a nonsense of myself that they ended up paying me because I was there all the time this was in my second year and only when I got to my third year did I think I haven't even read a book in its entirety for my degree I was very good at winging coursework and stuff because I could write quite well and I thought I'm going to have to stop the mirror because I've got to buckle Focus. down now and, and do my dissertation etc so I wrote a letter to Piers and said you know thank you so much for giving me the opportunity I do have to go and study for my third year now mm. but I would be thrilled to be given the opportunity to become a mirror graduate trainee even though I'd been told they all had master's degrees and they were mostly Oxbridge who mm. got on to the course so I genuinely didn't think I'd hear anything anything more so I applied to get on to the training scheme at the time there was about 2,000 applicants for three places mm -hmm. a year it was incredibly incredibly competitive mm. it was the most elite training scheme to get on for journalists so I, I applied thinking I haven't got a hope in hell finished my final exams, handed in my dissertation, went back to the Valleys and got a job on the Cannon Valley Leader, which was a weekly newspaper there. And about four weeks later, I got um, a phone call. No one even had, we had mobiles and they rang me at my mother's house and said, um, would you want to come in for an interview? And I thought, yes, I'd love to. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't just couldn't believe it. So I remember it vividly. My parents were on holidays in Spain, and you know, Frangarola or somewhere equally exotic, <laughs> and <laughs> and I didn't have anything to wear to this interview. So I had to ring my grandmother, who was about ninety. I'm not even joking. And I was like, you need to give me some money. I've got to go and buy oh. a suit to go to London. So she was ever so proud. Yes, gave me this money. And um, I travelled up to London and I walked into the Mirror Newsroom and I wasn't even that nervous. And as I walked into the Mirror News floor with the training director who was interviewing me, the news editor, who was really like the news editor is at the heartbeat of any newspaper, a guy called Eugene Duffy, he came across and he said, um, hi, Claire. I said, hello, Eugene. Yeah. When, you're, when you're here for your interview, yes, I am, Eugene. Yes, yes. And he went, I think you'll be all right. And I thought from that moment... I've got this. Mm. I've, I just, I think, because I showed such dedication mm. and then I got the job and it was the most, I think it was the happiest I've ever been in my life despite the fact I've had two kids. I think, because I just thought, I cannot believe I've achieved that, to come mm. from my background and to speak like I do and to get onto that training scheme wow. was such an achievement. I never knew any of that. Yeah. That's amazing. It, yeah. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. How do you feel that traditional media 
um, has changed? You know, you obviously came in at a time when it was very different to how it is now. Mm. Do you think there's been some positive changes made? Oh, absolutely. When I was first joined newspapers, there wasn't that many women there and Mm. certainly not many people with colloquial accents. And I was bullied by certain members of staff a lot. I was called thick, I was called stupid simply because of my accent. And that just wouldn't happen now. Mm. I think it's much more egalitarian. I think it's much more certain areas of the media and much more accepting of flexible working requirements mm-hmm. that working mums need to make it work. There are other media organisations who are completely inflexible. Mm. But I think the more responsible employers now are taking into account that to hold on to talent, and by that I mean working mums, and to get them back in the workforce. And by the way, I think working mums have so much to offer because they're so good at managing their time and they have a level of empathy that they can offer. Mm. Um, so I, I certainly think the media has improved dramatically since I first joined, which was 20 years ago. Mm. Do you feel like you've faced any real difficult challenges in your career? I'm sure there's been many, but like any real ones that stick in the mind and how have you overcome those? The biggest challenge I faced was I had a nervous breakdown when I was in 2004. I ended up in hospital in the November, but really I started... A really quite rapid descent into depression from about the May. Um, What started as sort of inexplicable crying, but not really knowing why you were crying and on the sofa for ages, quite quickly turned into paranoia, thinking people were talking about me. It's very hard to describe depression because I would describe it as nothingness. And the worst thing about when you are truly, truly in the depths of depression is you can't feel anything. Mm. You know how some people self-harm? I never self-harm, by the way. But I can see how they do that because it's trying to cause some sort of reaction because Mm. it is like your head is grey and there are weights on your cheeks stopping you from smiling or being sad. You're just existing in this vacuum of nothingness, Mm. which is soul-destroying, absolutely soul-destroying. I got to the point of being suicidal Mm. um, and then I ended up going into hospital for for seven weeks and then again the following year for four weeks. And was that voluntary or involuntary? No, it was voluntary, but Mm. I went to my GP and was this was before I was admitted about a month before and I was I was just poo-pooed away you know oh, oh just give you antidepressants and this but luckily I had private health care so I went to see a psychiatrist and he said you need to come into hospital mm-hmm. and no one wants to be told that they belong in a psychiatric hospital mm-hmm. like no one actually wants to think they are that person yeah so I politely declined and and left and then I had another week of fantasising about crashing my car into walls again mm. not to actually kill myself but to just to feel something mm. and then I was planning to take my own life and I went as far as going to Sainsbury's in Greenwich to buy tablets and what stopped me from going in to buy the tablets that I was so paranoid that Mm. everyone was talking about me Mm. I thought the pharmacist will know why I need the tablets and then she Mm. won't give them to me it was actually following that um, and through still speaking to some long-suffering friends at the time that I decided to seek help so I rang the psychiatrist then and he said right are you ready to come into hospital now and I said yes and I ended up staying there for seven weeks 
Were there any things in the build-up to that time that you sort of realise now were things that that might have triggered you to fall into that into the depths of that of that depressive yeah. stage? I think. As a newspaper journalist at the time, this was when newspapers were... I was being asked to do things that compromised my ethics. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm genuinely a stand-up person and a very honest person. And, you know, when you're asked to do things like... um, I remember one job, I had to go and meet a paedophile and, you know, and, and basically expose him for what he wanted to do to young kids. But I had to listen to this person tell me what he wanted to do to a young girl. And, oh and I was mic'd up by that. I mean, I had c- cameras on me and stuff. And mm. the guy ended up going to jail. So some good come out of it. But when the, we went to the police, they said, officers have years of training to do what you've just done. And, it's you know, it was that was just one of the things, you know. And Oh, my God, Claire. Yeah. You know some of the some of the stories tabloid newspapers done at the time. You know mm. they they'd expose cheating and stuff, and you they justify it as well. They shouldn't be cheating in the first place, but really there was still a wife and a baby at home mm. that was devastated by the news. And if you're the person that has to go to the front door and tell mm. that wife that, you know, so and it, it was it all just mounted up. And in the end, I think it got too much. And you went into hospital. What was that? Yeah. What was that time like? What did you did you have a good support network around you? You know, you're close with your family, but you've said that. You they're not particularly great at at speaking about emotions so what was that period like my mum and dad came to visit me once and I remember my mother saying well just stop telling them how you feel that's what's keeping you in here and you just realise they didn't have a clue but again they're just a product of the environment you know they it's a very Mm. closed best face on type type Mm. attitude but what hospital did for me was it allowed me just to get away from life Mm. you know it was daily therapies what it allowed me to do was just check out life and you have your food and at the and this was in the priory by the way this was not some nhs psychiatric hostel which Mm. might not be quite such lovely environment but this Mm. was a lovely old building in southwest london where i was having daily therapy speaking to a psychiatrist Mm. on medication and i was on a lot of medication but it just allowed me to rebalance as a result of, of everything that you've gone through with your mental health, I know that you're um, hugely passionate about promoting good health in the workplace. Mm. You know, I sat on, a, sat on a panel with you recently where we spoke about promoting the conversation in the workplace and, and destigmatizing the conversation in the workplace mm. around mental health. And actually, there was a specific employee there who actually picked you out as saying that you were really there for her in, in a time of quite desperate need. Why do you think that mental health must be discussed in the workplace more and how do you at Women's Health actively promote a healthy conversation around the subject? Well, it needs to be spoken about more because there is still a level of embarrassment around mental health. Some people think it's a weakness mm. and it needs to be destigmatized. Now, I don't necessarily agree when people say, oh, mental health should be treated just the same as a broken leg because you can, you can mend a broken leg. I don't think you can mend mental health. I think it's an ongoing journey and I think it's something that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. But the more and more we speak about it, the less stigmatised it will become. Now, I didn't speak about what happened to me for years and I was probably guilty of that, oh, 
you know, it's a weakness and it's something to be embarrassed but about. But also, if, so. you, if you look at your parents, like, yeah. if that had been drilled into you from a young age, yeah. I think it's incredibly brave of you to to even ring up a psychiatrist and say, I think I need help. Mm. Because, you know, it could have ended very, very differently. Oh, no, it could have, yeah. And, it, and it I really think that's, that's actually yeah. a real yeah. sign of strength in yeah. itself. I think the more and more you see women, I'm fairly high profile, the more and more you see women like me who are successful, two beautiful children, fit, healthy, and living with mental health issues and not letting it rule their life, mm-hmm. the more encouraging and comforting that will be to women who might be struggling. Now, I do an awful lot of public speaking about mental health, mm. as you know, often to very large audiences mm. on the national media. And when I've done talks in rooms, and sometimes there's 40 people, sometimes there's 200, without fail, people come up to me afterwards crying, mm. asking me to help them, and I'm not qualified to help them. All I can do is point them in the right direction. Mm. After Women's Health Live, we had emails of mm. people saying they didn't want to say something there, but they're suffering, mm. and please could we help you know, so So people, especially women... Women like hearing from other women. Mm. No, I didn't speak about what happened to me for years and years and years. I went to work at Grazia. I went to work at Look. I didn't mention it once to anyone. Why was that? Because I was still thought it was a weakness. Still thought people might judge me. And it was it was it more you thinking that, or was it actually a fear of I won't get the job? Yeah, or they I won't, won't get the hire job. Me. Yeah, who's going to promote someone who's got mental health issues That's that awful. could end mm. up checking out and go into the priory again mm. for seven weeks? So. Mm. So I didn't tell anyone. And the only time I started to speak about it was after I joined Women's Health because we want I wanted to do a mental health issue in line with World Mental Health Day in November. And we wanted women all at the top of their game. So we had a CEO, we had writers, we had Frankie Bridge, who's a, you know, a singer, we had charity bosses, doctors, all mm. women, some high profile or some just very successful in their own professions mm. and all speaking about their varying mental health issues. And this was a variety from psychosis to postnatal depression to personality disorders to depression to anxiety to bipolar. All these amazing, incredible women. And as we were putting the feature together... I was thinking, what a hypocrite am I being if I don't take part in this and I don't say what's happened to me because my experience has inspired this piece, but yet I'm not taking part in it. And at the time, the PR director at Hearst came to my office and I was speaking to her and I said, do you think I should do this? And she said, think very carefully before you do, because once you do start talking about this, you will always be the editor with mental health issues. And I thought, right. So I thought a bit more and I thought, no, I have to. I have to do it because I'm I'm fundamentally a very honest person. And I thought, I have to talk about it. And I haven't shut up since. That's quite a difficult thing to say. You know, th- that to me is actually... I mean, if someone turned around to me and said, oh, you'll always be the editor with mental health issues, I'd say, I'd flip that on its head. I'd say, yeah, I will be. I'll be the editor who's doing incredible things with the magazine, who is also managing every single day mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's all about how we see these things. You know, you you are a prime example of not letting it define you, <sighs> opening up, talking about it and feeling that almost like cathartic element of sharing mm. and 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 then helping others as a result too. Yeah, which is what I hope I did with that mag and what I hope I've done a- since. Absolutely, absolutely. And even now, obviously there are you have good days and bad days yeah. and you've spoken openly about that, but is there anything that you do to help protect your mental health? You know, you are juggling a lot and yeah. that must be quite a difficult thing 
if you are having a bad day, are there any things that you do now to help you uh, find balance or just to kind of make sure that you protect yourself from having a bad turn? Well, I do have bad days. Saturday, I had to go back to bed on Saturday, mm. which hasn't happened that recently. But mm. I was on the decline in work on Thursday and Friday. And I, I hypocritically, maybe I don't discuss it with my colleagues. And I just said, oh, I feel tired today when actually I was having really quite a bad day. So I do mm. have bad days. That's also linked, I think, with a bit of my time of the month and hormones. Mm. Thankfully, you shared it with me, though. And I was really grateful. And you are actually very good with, well, I'd like to think with me that we do talk about how Mm. you feel mentally quite a lot. And it does, I would hope, be a help. It is a help to you in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like in the gym this morning, I wasn't smashing out of the park like I normally am. But um, but (laughs) I think, you know, I'm I'm coming out the other side of a a bad few days. Mm. But what I do generally, I don't take medication. I'm not advocating not taking medication, by the way. It mm. works wonderfully for a lot of people. I stopped taking it some time ago. And I manage my mental health through eating well and moving. Mm. And if I go through a period of drinking, mm. and by the way, I don't drink very often at all these days because I don't have much of a social life. I've got a full-time job and two kids. But if I've had a few social occasions where I've had a few drinks, mm-hmm. that can affect my mood mm-hmm. and that will send me um, send me into a spiral. If I've eaten lots of sugar and processed stuff, that can send me down and I have to catch it before it goes too far. So you're almost like recognising your triggers and realising yeah. those are the things that might actually set you off if yeah. if you fall into those. Yeah. Do you think that there is only more that you are now going to do in that space and do you think, particularly with the magazine as well, that it's going to be something that you really have a heavy focus on moving forwards? Oh, absolutely. We did research at Women's Health two years ago and we asked our audience what's the main reasons that they read the, the magazine. The first one was nutrition, mm. no surprise there. The second was mental health, it wasn't fitness. Wow. Um, and that was two years ago and I you know, I yeah. absolutely believe that that would be replicated now. Mm. At Women's Health Live a few weeks ago, we had talks with leading neuroscientists and psychiatrists, psychologists. They were packed out. They were Mm. sold out, these talks, because there's such an appetite for that information. Mm. I think people are very much realising that wellness is holistic and actually you have to sort your head out and the rest will follow because if Mm. your head is in a good place, everything Everything else else will follow. You've received some criticism um, over the past few years about the lack of diversity Mm. in the magazine, which is something that I know you are actively trying to work to improve. I've only recently myself begun to realise how important important diversity and inclusivity are in the media and it's and I'm only growing to know more you know I'm reading lots and trying to understand the importance of it more because I sit here in a very privileged body and and understanding why those things are important is a big thing for me what are you guys doing to make those kind of positive changes in the magazine so we've launched a campaign called project body love it's in the mag the emma willis issue that is on sale at the moment and this is um, a campaign to improve women's body confidence and self-esteem not just for their benefit but for future generations so we will have a summer long series of content in women's health print and digitally and experientially it was at Women's Health Live and other Hearst brands including Cosmopolitan, L, Red and Good Housekeeping and it will be service driven content or first person content with the ultimate aim of equipping women with the tools to speak better about themselves and be kinder about the, to their own bodies but not just for their benefit for the future generations and by that I mean 
Research has shown that words become feelings. So if you look in the mirror on a daily basis and go, oh, I look fat today. Oh, look how podgy I am today. Oh, look at the mess I'm in. Oh, look how ugly I am. And these are all things that most women listen to this podcast have probably said to themselves mm. and they look in the mirror because that's what we do as British women. We, we are the second least body confident in the whole world. And this is research Terrible. that Women's Health has done for two years consecutively. We're part of a global network of additions in 33 countries. And we did global research and for two years consecutively we came back as the second least body confident. Poland was the only country that was worse than us. So as British women we beat ourselves up and it's a lot to do with language. Mm. So what we are doing, we are consulting psychiatrists, neurolinguists, um, sociolinguists, neuroscientists, thought thinkers and the body positivity movement and we're also doing research and it's out in the market at the moment we're nascent right research we've got women coming to focus groups they're filling in daily diaries huge research and from all that we're going to collate the findings and then work out give women the tools to speak better about themselves and, and learn how they should speak about themselves in front of their children or to their children about their appearance. And also, Hearst, as a publishing company, are going to ban negative words and phrases that women feel compromise their, self, mm. their sense of self-esteem mm. and body confidence. And then in terms of imagery, you're absolutely right, it's a challenge, but there has been a dramatic increase in the diversity you will have seen in Hearst brands, and I think across the board, actually. You only got to look inside Woman's Health to see there's much more diverse bodies than mm. there ever has been. Mm-hmm. L is leading the charge. Cosmo is very diverse. Red, the same. Mm. So there's... You know, there's there's room for improvement, and I'm not going to sit here and say that we're we're doing it 100%, but we're not. But we are. We are, there's an intention there mm. to change the imagery, mm. so we are more all inclusive. Now, the, and the problem we face as women's as women's health is that we can't shoot everything by that photograph, mm. everything. Otherwise, we'd be bankrupt. But the imagery doesn't exist in photo libraries to the to the volume that we need. Mm. But I know that that's something the photo libraries are, are looking at as well. Sure. So I think it's um, it's a slow process, but we have to look at the positives and positive steps have been taken. And I think actually one of the best things that you've said there is that you are listening to what everyone who reads the magazine is wanting Mm. you know the fact that you're even consulting with readers listening to experts getting advice from the people that are genuine readers of the magazine will ensure that okay it might not be this month but in the next year two years five years there will be a, a, a definite change off the back of listening to exactly what your readership wants and I think that's really really key looking forwards what are the changes that you're keen to implement in the magazine is there anything else I know that consulting with you know top experts has been a real thing that you've tried to um, do it's more of the same in that respect we to to protect the credibility of women's health and to protect our position as the leading publisher in women's magazines for Mm. for wellness content we have to speak to world leading experts and that's not just about project body love that's just generally so any expert that is quoted in women's health will be a leader in their field and my team was scrupulous about seeking out the best experts and if that means staying up until three in the morning to speak to somebody at Columbia University or Duke University in America whatever they will so so that will continue but the biggest change we've already discussed it the the 
the magazine is is becoming more inclusive. It's becoming mm. more diverse. It's it's there for everybody. Mm. The, the reason why Women's Health is growing on the newsstand, and it is growing on the newsstand in a very challenged environment, is that wellness is non-age specific. So you can read Women's Health if you're 18 or younger. And um, younger people do read it, but you don't start recording them till they're 18. Up until women who are much older than me, you know, mm. they they love the content. So I need to continue making the magazine relevant to as many women as I can. And you just said there, you know, even if it means going onto the phone at three o'clock in the morning to interview people, there is a definitely a culture of this sort of workism where we're almost thinking that we have to be working 24-7 and pushing ourselves. And actually what I think that's doing, and I've definitely been a, a victim of this, is burnout, doing yeah, too yeah. much and crashing and burning and, and having to take a big break as a result. How do you try and encourage your staff to have a balance with work? And, you know, you spoke about earlier, there are some traditional print medias that that don't have... um, Well, I lead by example. And by that, I don't come in super early and I leave on time. I'm not one of these editors that sits there hours after six o'clock and then people feel that they have to sit there next to them and they don't feel they can leave. I lead by example. And then that gives my team permission to also leave on time because a lot of people don't want to be seen to be leaving before their boss. I'm fully supportive of flexible working. I have two children myself, so I realise the absolute necessity of flexible Mm -hmm. working. Mm -hmm. And if somebody is at two o'clock in the morning having to set their alarm to to do an interview, which does happen, Mm. they then take it as loo. So they'll say... I'm not coming in Friday afternoon, I'm leaving half day. Mm. And there's absolutely no question from me, no query, mm. because I trust my team to do their job. I empower them to do their job. Mm. And empowered staff, section heads, will then empower the people beneath them. Mm. And you have an empowered workforce who are all proud to work there and happy working there. Mm. And I think that's the key. You have to be happy where you work. And mm. I manage with firm kindness. I don't take any nonsense, and they know I won't take any nonsense. But but equally, I'm very kind and very fair. Mm. And I think they appreciate that. So they wouldn't take advantage by swinging the lead, for want of a better phrase, because ultimately they've all got a job to do and deadlines to hit mm. and, the, and the magazine needs to get out and or they need to work on Hearst uh, Women's Health Live mm. or any other part of the brand. And I think leading by example is key there. You know, mm. if, if they see you not working a Friday, you know, take, having that, that really good balance of I'm going to work really hard in the hours that I'm that I'm sitting at my desk but actually I'm also going to go to the gym and I'm going to go for a walk at lunchtime maybe I'm going to do the things that also make me feel great I think that's really key mm. and I think it's something we definitely need more of in um, in the workplace wrapping up I have two questions for you that I finish every episode with although there is so much more that I'd love to chat about the first one is what does strength look like to you um for me I think I embody strength. I think I'm a a woman who is making it work. I'm a full-time working mum with two kids. Yeah, I manage a big team. I've got a really big job. Yeah, I managed to pull it off. And I think, to me, that's a strength. And you've overcome a lot as well. Yes. And I think that's incredible. And my final question for you is, who in your life demonstrates strength the most? (sighs) I don't, yeah, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I do think I've achieved a lot and I am achieving a lot on a day-to-day basis. And 
anyone who's doing similar to me embodies strength. So in my own life, yeah, can I say myself? You are absolutely allowed to say yourself and I will totally agree with you. Claire, it has been an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank you. It's very nice seeing you twice in one day. What a treat. (laughs) It's really inspiring to hear someone that is at the top of their game saying, you know, I still have good days and bad days. I still might have to go back to bed sometimes, but I'm managing it and... I think it's incredibly um, inspiring and I think you demonstrate a hell of a lot of strength. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for being a guest. Yeah, I will see you soon. Thank you. We all know how much powerful quotes can inspire us. So I've selected some of my favourite quotes from women who've inspired me to be your daily mantra through to the next episode. So today's quote is from the incredible Indian badminton player PV Sindhu. She said, the greatest asset is a strong mind. If I know someone is training harder than I am, I have no excuses. Thank you so much for tuning in to Give Me Strength. Please do join us next week for more incredible guests. In the meantime, I would love it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to be the first to listen to our brand new episode every Wednesday. Wednesday.